Good morning. Welcome again. We are arriving at the final section of the book of Samuel. Uh, it is this final section is a very carefully organized collection of texts about the whole life and kingdom of David. Uh, Trace Finley has been telling me over the last year or so about all these things that U2 is doing as they're getting to the end of their lives and releasing all these retrospectives and uh, re-recording old songs and writing memoirs and stuff like that. Uh, These chapters are are serving kind of a similar function in terms of David's life, uh, giving us this assortment of things that help us look back on everything that's been going on in his life, everything we've been hearing about. The point of the chapters is to help us make sense of everything we've been hearing about with David. Uh, and especially what all of it is pointing us forward to beyond David. Uh, you might remember from way back when we did 1 Samuel, that the book of 1 Samuel starts out with a song by lowly Hannah. Uh, Hannah confidently hoped in the arrival of God's king, showing up to finally rule for God against the proud and on behalf of the humble. Uh, As you go through the story of Samuel, though, you come across the deep failures of King Saul. And then even more so with the failures of King David, the whole narrative leaves us very hungry for a better king. It leaves us very hungry for a king who truly represents and resembles God here on earth. And so these four chapters are bringing all of that to a head for us. Uh, I'll get to my reading in a second, but to help you think about all this, There's actually six different pieces in these four chapters uh, woven together across three genres. Okay, we all clear? Six pieces, three genres. Um, I didn't have time this week to put it together for you in the outline. Um, My apologies, but look at my hands and follow what I'm saying. (laughs) On the outsides of these four chapters, at the very beginning and the very end, you have two stories. And then just inside of those, second to last and second from the beginning, you have two lists. And then in the very middle, you have two poems. Uh, And so at one level, these stories and lists and poems are about King David. But ultimately, we need to understand that all of this is fundamentally about God. Because God is always the main character. God is the true and the ultimate king that we need. Those outside narratives at the very beginning and the very end are about God's kingly mercy. I'm going to take them together next week. Uh, The first one of those is very bizarre and difficult, and I'm still not very clear on what it means. And I'm hoping that Jesus returns this week so I don't have to preach it to you. (laughs) But the inside lists and poems are about God's kingly might. So you have two stories about God's mercy. Uh, Today we're dealing with the middle sections on God's might. Uh, All of it is here to prepare us for what our mighty and our merciful God is going to do through his King Jesus. So let's read now. We're going to pick up uh, in that first poem that Vicki already started reading for us. This is 2 Samuel chapter 22, starting at verse 32. This is the middle of the first poem. David goes on, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge, and he's made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. 
You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and I did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was no one to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. That's the first poem. Now the second poem. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we admit that we are distracted with so much busyness that we are anxious and worried about many things. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to occupy ourselves now with the better portion, that we would sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his teaching. Help us to respond to him with love, with joy, with obedience. Show us what a great king he is, we ask in his name. Amen. So I said that today we're covering the central pieces of this whole chunk of chapters. Uh, These pieces all deal with God's kingly might. Uh, But many people, and perhaps some of us here today, are not all that sure that God is so very mighty. Uh, Maybe we are not very sure that, like David said, our enemies are too strong for us, that we need God to be mighty for us. So much of the time, uh, we imagine and we act as if God were not so mighty, but rather so puny. So the text is here today. These pieces of these last four chapters are here to convince us that God really is mighty. That he really can, he really does save his people from his and from their enemies. From evil, from death, from chaos, from destruction. 
the heart of the whole section is that pair of poems that we read together in chapters 22 and the beginning of chapter 23. That first poem, the longer one, is depicting God's past saving might toward King David. And the second one depicts God's future saving might through King David's messianic descendant. So the first poem, the long one, is about God's saving might in the past. The second one is about God's saving might in the future. Uh, But before we zero in on those two central poems that want to argue for us that God really is mighty through his king, uh, we have these two adjacent lists on the outsides that argue for God's saving might through his people. The poems are about his saving might through his king. The lists are about his saving might through his people. I don't have time to go in detail through all of the lists, but their basic point is the same. In that first list, this is uh, the second half of chapter 22. In the first list, you have four little stories about how four different warriors fight on behalf of David against four grotesque Philistines, the famous and long-standing enemies of God's people. Uh, You might remember from back in 1 Samuel that David's kingly career began when he was just a boy with his unlikely defeat of the giant Philistine Goliath. Nobody in Israel on that day trusted that God could save them or would save them. Nobody trusted, except David, that God could and would give them victory over their oppressors. But now, at the very end of David's career, these little stories show us that David has inspired and equipped Israel's army to vanquish many more gigantic ghouls than he did. Even as these enemies, just like Goliath, in these stories are arrogantly ridiculing God. They are ridiculing God's people. They are ridiculing God's promises. Uh, Just like Goliath did, these warriors trust in their own spectacular weaponry. But verse 22 summarizes what happens. They fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. But as the narrative of Samuel has been underscoring for us over and over, we know that these victories are ultimately God's victories. That God is the one who ultimately fights for his people and through his people. You can see the same thing in the other list. If you jump forward to chapter 23, verses 8 and following, this is the second list. This list now details for us the names and the triumphs of David's special forces. Uh, what our text calls his mighty men. You hear various stories. You hear about some men who killed hundreds of Philistines in single battles. Uh, Somebody else killed so many of them, it says that his hand clung to his sword. This is probably a reference to there being so much blood that it all caked on his hand so that he couldn't get it off. There's a bunch of stories of this happening in the ancient world. Uh, And then my favorite little story here is about somebody else, a brave uh, soldier of David's, who stands by himself while his companions are all fleeing because he's defending a patch of lowly lentils. Uh, His story gets in here too. In verses 24 and following, you then get this list of 30 heroes. Uh, They don't get their own little stories, but they're still named here. They're still honored here just with their names being listed out for us because they too were part of struggles and battles that verses 10 and 12 describe like this. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The stories and the lists show us God's saving might through his people. 
not just through the physical strength and courage of men, as important as that was and as that is today, but rather also that God is working his saving might through all of his people and in all kinds of ways. God has always equipped his people to stand for him and his purposes to fight against his enemies. Today, as a partial foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do at his second coming, God still does today call and equip uh, for people to physically punish the violent and the aggressive. Sometimes that is done by individual Christians in their callings in this world. But unlike with Israel, that's not the job of the church itself. The church's battle, the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians, the church's battle is not against flesh and blood, but against demonic forces and evil desires. Paul says there that our shield as Christians is our faith, and that our sword is the word of God. In another letter, Paul says that the church's war is about destroying arguments. It's about destroying our arrogance against God. Paul says there that we're, in our battle, the church's battle, we're about the capturing not of people, but rather of thoughts and of desires. God continues to work his saving might through his people and through his church in this world. The 2,000 years of the church's history are full of stories about how God's people have heroically stood against darkness and injustice and sin. Their encouragement and their example is part of why it's so important for us as Christians to be regularly reading and reflecting upon church history. This is our story. Uh, But not all of us are going to be a perpetua. Perpetua was a young mother who was rejected by her family and martyred by the local officials because of her faith in Christ in the early 2nd century. She was famously nursing a baby at the time, and they said, this is insane. Renounce Christ. Your baby's going to die if you don't. She said, I don't care. I can't abandon him. Not all of us are going to be a St. Ambrose. This is the late 4th century pastor who rebuked the Roman emperor for slaughtering thousands of civilians. And then amazingly, the emperor showed up in church one day and publicly repented before him. He took off his royal clothing and he laid down on the floor as an act of repentance. If that ever happens here, make sure you get a good picture of it. Not all of us are going to be a William Wilberforce, the early 19th century politician who after decades and decades of failed attempts finally ended up leading the abolition of British slavery because of his faith in Christ. Not all of us are going to have these spectacular stories of success that people will be looking back on in hundreds of years. But at the same time, all of us need to be courageous in our battles against God's enemies. Most important and most difficult of all and most dangerous of all, we need to be courageous in our battles against sin in our own hearts and our own relationships. We need to be battling against our lust and our gluttony against our anger and our apathy, against our self-centeredness and our self-righteousness. Our battles against sin are preparing all of us for the great and final battle against our death. And so these lists here in 2 Samuel, as mundane as they might first appear to be, as boring as they might seem to us at first, they're actually showing us that God's kingly saving might is at work in this world, not in spite of his people, but actually through his people. 
His people whose names and battles and wars are known to God, even if not known to anybody else. As God has been doing for thousands of years, he can and he will strengthen you to be courageous and victorious in these hard and painful battles. So that's God's saving might for and through his people. But then in these two central poems, we see God's saving might for and through their king. That's the heart. It's the most important part of these four chapters. First, like I said, you have this poem about God's saving might in the past. That's chapter 2. We hear in chapter 22, verse 1, that David composed this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. You remember that David's life was marked by constant danger and suffering. That David spent years and years running away from the jealous King Saul. Uh, All of that would get reenacted when David's son Absalom rose up against him and drove him off his throne and into the wilderness. And so this song, which is almost exactly the same as the 18th Psalm, this song is placed here at the end of 2 Samuel as a kind of summary of how the Lord has been saving David all through his life. It's like David's theme song. It begins with a confident declaration of who God is. David says, He's my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. The point of all these images is that in spite of all of the chaos and all the weakness and all the danger in David's life, he says the Lord has always been steady. The Lord has always been strong. The Lord has always provided safety. After describing his suffering in terms of being trapped in the clutches of death, David then describes how God acted as a mighty king to rescue him from it all. David uses lots of language and imagery from the days of Moses when God had revealed himself up on Mount Sinai after bringing his people through the Red Sea and drowning their enemies. David says things like this, echoing all those events back in the early days of Israel's history. David says that glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. The Lord thundered from heaven. The channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. This is all meant to evoke for us the exodus and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. It all sounds pretty dazzling. It's all pretty sensational. And you might be wondering, what is David talking about? When did these things happen in his life? Uh, If you read the story of David, we might be surprised to find that there are actually no miracles in David's life. There are no booming voices from heaven. There are no seas being split open. There are no lightning bolts from the sky to ruin his enemies. The lofty poetic language of this song, evoking the uniquely miraculous events of the Exodus, this language is lifting the veil for us. It's showing us that in the very ordinary battles and struggles of David's life that we've been hearing about for so long, It's showing us that those kinds of things are actually God's mighty, saving, miraculous work. As mundane as all of it is, like those lists of the men and all their battles and all their names, as mundane as all of it is for them and it is for us today, we're being shown that the underlying reality is a mighty, kingly God, mightily bringing salvation to and through his king. In many ways, uh, this is like what the book of Revelation is doing in showing us all these vivid, wild images about uh, the, the war behind the scenes. Uh, 
Revelation is mainly describing the ordinary suffering of Christians here on earth and why we should be encouraged as we face opposition in the world, as it lifts the veil for us to show us, here's what God's really doing. Now look at why God does all this for David. In verse 21, David shifts to explaining why God acts like this. He says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. He says, I was blameless before the Lord. The Lord's rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Uh, If you've been paying attention to David's life, uh, you should be a little surprised to hear this. Because here at the whole, at the end of this whole narrative of his life, which has been uh, very clear with us about how sad and sorry and sinful David's life has turned out to be, here at the very end of all that, you have David himself confidently declaring his obedience, confidently declaring his righteousness before God. And so we ask, how can this be? We have seen that David was a sexual predator that David was a murderer, that all of it led to enormous misery for his family and his kingdom, and that his old age has been mainly marked by weakness, by enabling other people's sin. The author has not been trying to hide from us David's failures. Even in the final retrospective chunk of the book on David, I didn't tell you this earlier, but that list of 30 heroes, uh, the final one listed for us is Uriah the Hittite. This punch in the gut. This reminder of the man whom David murdered after violating his wife. One of David's heroes. And so while it's possible that David wrote this song at a younger and happier stage of his life when his life was marked by much greater obedience, even if that's true, the author of Samuel has very intentionally put it here at the very end of his life, as a summary of the whole thing. Why does he do that? Uh, The first reason I think that this poem is here, at the end of David's life, is to point us forward beyond David, to remind us that David is not the king we need. Uh, In this psalm of David, we are ultimately looking forward to the greater son of David, to Christ. He was the only man who has ever lived, who could ever fully and totally point to his own perfect obedience to God without any qualification. Jesus was and is the ultimate servant of God. His perfect obedience to God's law made it not only right, but necessary for God to save him from the misery of death in the resurrection. But second, the reason that we have this confident declaration from a deeply sinful man that he is blameless before God, the reason we have that here, secondly, is to remind us that God really does accept us as righteous and blameless in his sight. Not because we are actually perfectly obedient before him. Of course, we are not. But rather, because of God's mercy, he's willing to pass over our sin because of a perfect sacrifice made in our place. In David's lifetime, the animal sacrifices of the tabernacle pointed forward to the final sacrifice of Christ on the cross. For us today, now we look backward to the cross as our basis for our own confidence before God. The perfect obedience of Christ, in a real sense, becomes ours, so that God now views and treats us like he does his own son. In receiving this gift of righteousness, what the New Testament calls justification, in receiving that gift of righteousness, we also now 
live in righteousness. God's children really do, even if imperfectly, but they really do respond to God's gift by growing in obedience, by growing in holiness. The basic foundation, the basic orientation of our lives becomes one of loving and of obeying God's law more and more so that we really can say in a real sense, I'm righteous, I'm blameless, I'm clean before you. This is the basic direction of my life. The poem ends by highlighting what God's saving might for his king leads to. First, David rejoices in how God strengthens his king to conquer his enemies. Uh, David does not say, I engaged in conflict resolution. He says, I thrust my enemies through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. You equipped me with strength for the battle. He says, you gave me vengeance. You brought down peoples under me. You delivered me from men of violence. But we also hear at the end of the psalm here that this conquest of his enemies was not the only outcome for the king. God not only worked mightily by destroying those who rose up against him, but even more gloriously, God worked mightily by making friends for David from all over the world. David says that you kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Verse 50 uh, is later cited by the Apostle Paul as a reference to how Christ is drawing all peoples to himself from all over the world. David says there, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. David and Jesus as the worship leaders for the whole world. God has worked mightily to conquer his king's enemies, but also to bring in for him new friends and far-flung servants. He did this for David, And he did it and he is doing it most of all for Christ whose greatest conquest was the resurrection with its sin and its death-destroying power now leading the nations to Christ for the last 2,000 years. Uh, I've been reading recently uh, Caesar's account of how he conquered Britain or tried to conquer Britain and Caesar spends all this time going through what the peoples of the Druids were like, the Gaelic peoples of uh, southern Britain which is where my ancestors were from. It was pretty nasty, ugly things those people were doing. Uh, somehow, God mercifully brought lots of those people to himself so that one day, me and my ancestors could hear about him. You see this focus on God's messianic king even more clearly in the second poem, in chapter 23. Uh, you shift from a poem about God's saving might toward his king in the past, now to God's saving might toward his king in the future. Chapter 23, verse 1, says that these are the last words of David. Not literally his final words. You have to read a little bit of the ways into 1 Kings to read about David's uh, deathbed. But rather, this is more like David's final will and testament. David introduces the poem by saying that this is an oracle, that the Spirit of the Lord is speaking by him, that the rock of Israel has spoken to me. All of that is to underscore the magnitude and the majesty of of what David's about to tell us. It's underscoring that David is speaking prophetically and emphatically about God's plans for his kingdom in this world. And so when you hear David saying over and over again, I'm speaking for the Lord, I'm speaking an oracle, the Spirit's speaking right now. When you hear that, your ears are supposed to perk up a little bit. You're supposed to sit up in your seat and say, this is really important. What is he going to say? Verse 3, he says this. This is the heart of his little poem. 
When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, uh, it literally says, ruler over humanity, the righteous one. Ruler in the fear of God. It's telling us that we are hearing about God's promised Messiah. We're hearing about the king who would not only rule over little tiny pathetic Israel, but who would rule the entire world, the ruler of mankind. Uh, Humanity had been created uh, in Adam uh, to rule the planet in wisdom and integrity and justice. Adam was to do all of this in love and reverence for God. He was to be the world's ultimate ruler. And so we're hearing about a new version of Adam now, a better version of Adam. As Christians, we, of course, believe and know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the world's true king. He's the son of God, the son of Adam, the son of David. He's the one who can rightly claim the full promises that God made to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, David here calls that an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. It's not going anywhere. David says in verse 4 that when God's final Davidic global king comes... He will dawn on humanity like the morning light, like the sun shining on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. The point of these simple bucolic images about sunshine and rainfall, the point is that God's Messiah is going to rule over us and rule over this world so that we will enjoy life and vitality so that we will enjoy prosperity and plenty. He's going to be the perfect reflection and application of God's goodness and beauty and truth over his entire creation. David says that the coming of God's Messiah is going to bring rest and renewal for those who love him. But for those who oppose him, David says here that the coming of God's Messiah is going to bring death and destruction. He says in verse 6 that God's king will also utterly consume worthless men, evil men. He will consume them with fire, just like somebody burns up a pile of thorny bushes. God's restoration comes on the heels of God's wrath. Ultimate peace comes through ultimate justice. God's king will rescue and redeem this world. He's already begun to do that in the first coming of Jesus, primarily through the forgiveness of our sins, through victories over sin in our lives, through the conquest of death itself. But we know that God will finish his work of redemption when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes back to physically and fully cleanse and heal this world. Because Jesus is God's saving and truly righteous king. He was saved from the chains of death because of his obedience to God and he did all of it for the sake of bringing life to his humble people just like Hannah had longed for. He did it for those whom he now is strengthening to stand in his love and in his peace and in his joy to stand for his kingdom and against sin and evil and death. He really is mighty. He's mighty for his king, and because he's mighty for his king, he's mighty for you, the king's people. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your saving might toward a needy and helpless people. Our enemies are too great for us. We can't save ourselves. We need you to win the victory for us. And we celebrate that you've already done so in Jesus. Help us, Father, to stand for your kingdom, not for our own little kingdoms. Help us to fight against your enemies, not the things that we selfishly think are our own enemies. Help us, Father, to be marked by love for you and courage in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.